I would like uh, to turn you uh, this evening to two or three passages in the Bible. And the first I would like to turn you to is in the book of Revelation. And chapter 8, the last book of the Bible, and chapter 8. When the Lamb had broken the seventh seal, there was silence throughout all heaven for what seemed like half an hour. And I saw the seven angels that stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and a great quantity of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people to offer upon the golden altar before the throne. And the perfume of the incense mixed with prayers ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the censer with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed and rumbled, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. And again, in the New Testament, in Acts and chapter 4. Acts and chapter 4 and verse 23. And being let go, they came to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And they... When they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, thou that didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves in array and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For of a truth in this city, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. And now, Lord, look upon their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants to speak thy word with all boldness, while thou stretchest forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken wherein they were gathered together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them said that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles their witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then in the old covenant in uh, Daniel, and chapter 9. From verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, who, made, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, 
for the accomplishing of the desolations of Jerusalem, even seventy years. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, who keepeth covenant and loving kindness with them that love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and have dealt perversely and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even turning aside from thy precepts and from thine ordinances. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets that spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he instructed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment went forth, and I am come to tell thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. I have been asked this evening to speak on a subject which may, at the first reading, seem to some people to be rather mystical or impractical, a sort of uh, somewhat irrelevant when it comes to the kind of situations that Israel and the Jewish people are facing. In fact, <clears throat> I believe that providing we do all the other things that are necessary, this whole matter of real prayer our real intercession is the most vital and strategic work that you and I could be engaged in as far as Israel is concerned. Of course, one has the greatest sympathy with people who believe that prayer meetings are somewhat irrelevant, judging by our normal prayer meetings. We go into them and we have to summon up every bit of faith that we have in God to really believe that what happens in those meetings gets beyond the ceiling. We hear the same old words, we hear the same old sermonettes, we hear the same old paraphrases of Scripture. People open with the same word and close with the same word. They've done so for 30 years and they're likely to go on until they go to be with the Lord. The thing is very dull and you can understand younger people coming into such a time wondering, what kind of thing is this? How relevant is this? Would to God every prayer meeting was like the prayer, the type of prayer that John described when he was imprisoned in that forced labor camp in the Isle of Patmos. When he saw the Lamb, and when he saw the Lamb about to break the seventh seal, in other words, something to do with the will of God, something to do with the um, uh, purpose of God, the program of God, <coughs> had to be fulfilled. And as the Lamb just came to break the seventh, the final seal in all the seals that had sealed that great scroll, suddenly his attention was diverted. From the Lamb, at the heart of the throne of God, to the earth. And on the earth he saw a people, God's people, redeemed people, People born of God's Spirit. People who, be, who were saved by the grace of God. And he saw them burdened 
And then he saw them so burdened that they began to pour out their hearts in prayer. And then he saw an angel come with a golden censer filled with incense. And he saw this, uh, this angel adding into the prayers of these people all this incense on the golden altar until a great cloud of blue smoke went up and the whole thing was filled with the perfume of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's people. Then he saw something happen. That was no dull prayer meeting. There were thunders, there were lightnings, there was an earthquake. Would to God such things happened in our prayer meetings. This was no tottering into some little dull, dusty ecclesiastical room and then saying a few words into the air and a half hour later tottering out with nothing ever having happened. Something here happened. The angel took these prayers and cast the whole thing onto the earth. And there was immediately thunder and lightning and an earthquake. And immediately the seven angels stood to blow the seven trumpets. And the last stage of God's purpose had begun. My dear friends, that is a picture, a symbolic picture of what prayer ought to be. I have absolutely no doubt at all whatever uh, some Christians may say, what some Christian leaders may say, what some theologians may say about Israel and the Jewish people, that God has a purpose for the Jewish people. There is a divine destiny for Israel and the Jewish people that has as not yet been fulfilled. They have survived not to be liquidated, not to disintegrate, not to be destroyed either by military, political or economic means or even moral means. This people has been preserved by the grace of God as a sign to the nations of the world that the God of Israel is the factor in history. And that the God of Israel has a purpose for the nations. And that Israel lies at the very heart of that purpose for the nations. Now, my friends, it's all very well to say that. It's all very exciting. It's lovely to think in the mess that we see in the world today, all this build-up of armaments, all these nuclear devices, all the possibility being on the brink of a nuclear catastrophe or even the catastrophe of a conventional war. I mean, people always talk about nuclear things as if that would be dreadful. At least that would blow us all out immediately. But a conventional war today is as terrible as anything else. The new type of weapons, the power of the weapons, the intensity of these weapons is tremendous. And we are living in a world that is on the brink of this kind of catastrophe. At any given moment, the thing could suddenly, with some incident, begin. Does anyone seriously think that when Pakistan gets its bomb, which Muammar Gaddafi has so largely financed, that something's not going to happen in the world? Does anyone seriously think that if Iraq ever gets a nuclear device, she will not use it? Not only upon Israel, but upon some of her neighbors, her other neighbors. Does anyone think that if that demonic human being, Khomeini, ever manages to develop a nuclear device, he will not use it? For in the interests of Islam, my dear friends, it's all very wonderful to say, oh, God is working out his purpose in this thing. We see it, it's exciting, it's marvelous, it's, it's, it's just uh, wonderful. The whole point of that vision given to John in that copper mine in Patmos 
was that the people of God, redeemed by the Lord and in a spiritual union with Him, were involved in a prayer warfare that brought about the fulfillment of this great program of God. In other words, I take it to mean that at each successive stage of the fulfillment of that purpose, the people of God were working with the Lord. They were standing together with the Lord. They were, as it were, co-workers together with God in the unseen. Is that too much for you? When you think of our prayer meetings? Well, that's the whole point of the angel taking a censer and adding in incense. You never start to really pray till you know you can't. But when you have recognized the fact that really your words are so poor, and you are so insignificant and so small, then you begin to understand the significance of the angel with the golden censer and the adding in of the incense, for it is all the excellencies and glories and beauties of the Messiah which are being added into the prayers of God's people and making what would otherwise be weak and insignificant, powerful and eternally significant. Take the church of prayer in Acts chapter 4. Oh, I would to God that all our prayer meetings were even like that. I mean, here they were in a crisis situation. The leaders had been arrested. They had more or less been decapitated, if you understand what I mean, metaphorically speaking. The, the, the leadership of, of, of this newborn group of people, this, this new movement of the Spirit of God had been arrested. And they didn't know what to do, but they did the one thing they could do. They got on their knees and they poured out their burden to the Lord. And they were not weak and stupid. They were, it was tremendous. And of course, the leaders came. And as soon as they get in, then they lifted up their voice with one accord to the Lord. No, they weren't any the worse for their experience. They seemed to have been better qualified to be intercessors. They took a psalm too, not to preach at the Lord, but simply to take this declaration of the purpose of God that even if the Gentiles rage like a foaming sea, it will make no difference to the Lord. He has set his Messiah on his holy hill of Zion. And he is told of the decree. It's settled in the heavens by God. And they announce this. And then they ask the Lord, Now, Lord, stretch forth your hand. Whilst everybody else is threatening us, stretch forth your hand and heal and do wonders and signs and miracles in the name of your holy child, Jesus. And whilst they were praying, the whole place was shaken. Same thing again. Shaken. It was like a little earthquake, a mini earthquake. The place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know why everyone stops there. And they all say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get down to prayer and the place was shaken. My dear friends, who wants a place to be shaken? But this is the kind of mentality we often have. We think, oh, that was a miracle. Oh, that was a real miracle. I mean, they got on their knees in prayer. This is how poverty-stricken our prayer times are. That we could imagine that the shaking of the building was the most important thing that happened as a result of that prayer meeting. My dear friends, the most important and most significant thing as a result of that prayer meeting was those that believed were of one mind. Any, God can shake any building, anytime, anywhere. It's no, no problem to God. He doesn't even need to have a whole legion of angels to shake this place. Probably one could do a good job on it. That's no disrespect to the Westminster Chapel and its foundations. But to make the people of God of one mind and one heart, that is a miracle. That requires united intercession. 
that requires incense added into the prayers of God's people. And that requires something more than even that. Not only a knowledge of the will of God and a declaration of the will of God, it requires the Holy Spirit to fall upon the people of God. In other words, the secret to our unity is always in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's never in just a recognition of doctrine or of truth objectively. It's important. But it is the coming of the Holy Spirit that swamps all our differences, overcomes all our collisions, melts us into a loving community of unity and purpose in which no one says that what he has is his own, but everyone holds what he has for the good of the whole. My dear friends, that is effective prayer. Or take Daniel. That's effective prayer. Here was a man one wonders why he kept on saying we have to we have transgressed, we have sinned, we have dealt wickedly, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other. You might say, Daniel, cut it out. You're going too far. You're the one person who hasn't done all these things. You're absolutely kosher. You haven't eaten a single non-kosher thing since you've been in the palace. You nearly lost your life at the beginning by standing absolutely out that you would not touch any one of the king's delicacies because of the kashrut laws. Now here you are saying to the Lord, we have dealt wickedly, we have sinned, we have done this. That's not the point. Daniel was interceding. Daniel had taken the pain and the burden in the heart of God, so into his own, and seen the condition of God's people so realistically, so practically, in such sharp, clear-cut terms, that it was as if he stood before God as Israel itself in all its sin and transgression, and pleaded with the Almighty to have mercy upon that people and upon that city of Jerusalem and upon the house that he had called by his name. Three weeks Daniel was at it. If I know anything about the powers of darkness I have no doubt that Daniel had begun to wonder after the first week whether it really was whether he was on the right tack. Wouldn't you? Three times a day at prayer and doesn't seem as if anything's happening, getting nowhere. I can imagine the enemy saying to Dan, Daniel, give it up. Beating your head against a brick wall. And anyway, you've just read the scriptures. You've read Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say, Daniel? Jeremiah said 70 years are needed for the accomplishing of the, of the uh, desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Daniel, if God says 70 years, he means 70 years. And don't you think, Daniel, that your little prayer is going to make any difference at all? Because the Lord has said 70 years. And when the 70 years is up, Daniel, whether you pray or you don't pray, it's going to happen. Of course, Daniel, you're beating your head against a brick wall. You're wearing yourself out. Calm down. Give up your prayer time. Don't smell the flowers. Look at the butterflies. View the garden. Relax. Hasn't God said he will do this thing? God is perfectly well able to do it without Daniel. But again, Daniel had understood something. He had in one sense, under the old covenant, seen what John, that other great Jewish leader, had seen under the new covenant. Daniel was in Babylon. John was in Patmos. Both places represented alien powers, alien empires. Something that was not the heart of God's purpose. But Daniel had seen what John had seen. That only when a 
God's people are burdened with God's burdens and understand those burdens in the light of God's word and begin to pour out their hearts in prayer, does something happen in heaven whereby the prayers are presented in the beauties and glories and excellencies of the Messiah? When that angel Gabriel finally got to Daniel, he said, Daniel, I, the very first moment you began to pray, your supplication was heard. And I was sent to tell you that you are greatly beloved. You are strategic, Daniel. And your prayer ministry has been absolutely vital in the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel. But on my way to you, I was waylaid with a scrap between the angel of Greece, the prince of Greece, and the prince of Persia. I, I know it all sounds very strange. And there are, of course, people who sort of look upon it all as some kind of fairy tale, like Hans Christian Andersen, or Grimm's fairy tales. They sort of think, well, I mean, it sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, Persian Empire, these other empires. But if we believe God's word, what it reveals is this, that the whole of human history, listen carefully, the whole of human history is only the evidence of unseen invisible forces. In other words, what we see in the flesh and blood realm is only the evidence of what's going on behind the scenes. The Essenes called it the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And the Essenes spoke that in the last days there would be this consummation of the battle between light and darkness. My friends, that's exactly where we are. Exactly where we are. We are moving into the last phase of world history and the return of the Jewish people to the land promised to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob is the evidence that we have moved into the last phase of world history. And the reunification of Jerusalem as the fulfillment of the words of Jesus in Luke 21 and verse 24 that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled is another evidence that we have moved into the last phase of world history. That last phase may be a century, it may be two centuries, it may be a lot more, but I will tell you this, at the heart of the world stage, Israel lies and will continue to occupy the central place of that world stage until the Messiah appears. My dear friends, that's why I said at the beginning of this address, that I believe it real prayer, real intercession, is the most vital and the most strategic work that believers could be engaged in. As far as Israel is concerned herself, this matter of intercession is vital. She stands in need of such intercession and prayer. Israel need much more than money. She needs money. But she needs much more than money. She needs arms. But she needs much more than arms. She needs friends, friendly nations, friendly superpowers almost, but she needs far, far more than friendly nations and friendly superpowers. Israel needs the hosts of heaven. Let no one tell me that Israel is going to survive 
without the intervention of God. She has not done so far, and she will not do so in the years that lie ahead. The most desperate need of Israel is that the Lord should fight her battles for her, that he should protect her, that he should provide for her, and that however difficult the way, he should not forsake her. There is only one people in the whole world that occupies a place in the unseen while yet being on earth, and that is the redeemed people of God. If I understand my Bible correctly, those who are born of God are in Christ, that is in the Messiah, in heavenly places. If that statement is correct, it means that those who are born of God are the only people in the world who live on earth and yet at the same time occupy a position in union with the Messiah in the heavenly or invisible places. And it isn't just that they should be happy there. The whole the whole point is that there in that position they should be able to war the warfare of divine service and see that the purpose of God is fulfilled. In other words, what I am saying is this, that in the final analysis it is a spiritual battle. And therefore, although it has to do with armies and physical weapons and physical morale and the physical unity of a nation, in the end, it is what happens in the unseen that will determine the outcome of every such battle. This means that effective prayer has something to do with the purpose of God, with the person of God. It's not just a religious exercise. It has something to do with the person of God. It is related to the person of God. It is directly related to God. It is directly related to his will, to his word, to his purpose, to his program. Let me move on a, a stage further. If we are to touch the throne of God for Israel, we need to have clear vision and understanding. Now, I don't mean by that that we should understand every single prophetic detail, but if we are going to be involved in effective, practical, prayer warfare that brings results and consequences, that brings about the fulfillment of God's purpose for Israel on earth at this time, we have got to have a, an understanding of the will of God for the Jewish people. I hear often in Christian circles, talk about the veil on the Jewish heart. But I want to tell you that there is a veil on the church's heart. And nobody can talk about removing the veil on the Jewish heart until the veil on the church's heart has been torn away. The enemy has done a dastardly and dreadful work in blinding the church to the real destiny of the Jewish people. I wish that we could say that it was only the Crusaders that were responsible for the things that have been done to the Jew in the name of Christ and in the sign of the cross. I think I don't think I need to tell you all here that from the Rhine, the River Rhine, all the way to Jerusalem, those crusaders that have become a symbol of chivalry, of righteousness, of compassion for the poor, 
for the widow, for the orphan, bathed the ground with Jewish blood. Men, women, children and babes in arms. And when they got to Jerusalem, they shut up the whole Jewish community in the great synagogue and burnt them to death. And as they died, they named the name of Jesus Christ over them and made the sign of the cross and then went into the holy sepulchre and knelt in the blood and sang a te deum. It was the blood of Muslims, of course, in the holy sepulchre. That left an indelible scar upon the Jewish consciousness. I don't think it has ever healed. That's what Jesus came to mean to the Jew. And what the cross came to mean to the Jew. And when later the Inquisition came, and with it we know thousands upon thousands of real believers were tortured through some misinterpretation of Scripture, of saving the spirit by destroying the body. They were burnt to death. But every single real Christian that died at the hands of the inquisitors, thousands of Jews died. Whole great Jewish communities, aristocratic, wealthy, educated centers of learning in Portugal and Spain were destroyed, never to reappear. And the last thing any Jew heard as he died in agony was the name of Jesus Christ named over him and the sign of the cross made over him. Would to God that was the end of the story and we could say it was all to do with the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. But as late as the end of this last century and the right up to the first quarter of this and indeed right up to 1947 in the last pogrom, there were what we call pogroms, which in Russian just means devastation, desolation, out of the night, on Christmas Eve, or Christmas Day, or Easter Sunday, or Good Friday, or Whitson, would ride people crying, death to the Christ killers, death to the Christ killers. They would set fire to the thatch of the homes of Jewish communities, rape the women, batter the men to death, kill the babies, leave whole Jewish communities devastated and desolate. Out of these pogroms came Israel's first leaders, David Ben-Gurion, Dolda Meir, and so many others. Sometimes they sang a hymn as they set fire to the Jewish communities. Or people come to me and then say, but you know, it's, uh, it's uh, just a question of, uh, of nominal Christians. Oh, would to God we could say that. Would to God we could say that. If the Catholic record has been black with the Crusades and with the Inquisitors and the Orthodox has been bad with the pogroms, my dear friends, the Protestant Church should blush with shame. If I had the time, and this is not my subject this evening, I would read you verbatim from Martin, one of Martin Luther's last books written against the Jews and their lies in 1541 to 42. When he said, go out, I will tell you what you should do. Putting it in my own words. Go out and burn their synagogues down. Bury every stone that's not a stone shall remain of their synagogues. Burn their prayer books. Burn their Torah scrolls. Then drive them out of their homes. Make them go into cowsheds and pigsties. And many other things. That is why the Lutheran Church's record in Germany was so anti-Jewish. When Goebbels wanted propaganda for the German people against the Jews, he reprinted the words of Martin Luther verbatim. My dear friends, the enemy has done such a work amongst the people of God, so that somehow or other we are in a period of confusion in one sense. There are those who tell us that the real Israel is the church, 
and that this Israel is a political accident has nothing whatsoever to do with the purpose of God. I feel very sorry for works like Prayer for Israel and the Christian, International Christian Embassy. They're in a pincer movement. How clever the powers of darkness are. On the one side we have extremist Christians and on the other side we have extremist Jews. And in the middle is the Christian Embassy and Prayer for Israel and other such movements. On the one side we're told by Christian extremists, why aren't you preaching the gospel? You should go out and convert those Jews. They need converting. They don't understand. How in the world could you ever convert somebody in whose mind the very name of Jesus conjures up darkness? When I was speaking a few years ago at the invitation of the South African Zionist Federation all over South Africa, and they had a, 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 a luncheon in Johannesburg, and they asked me to speak on the new attitude of Christians toward Jews. And I, I, and I spoke about it afterwards as a question time. And one of the officials I had noticed, a rather short man, a very nice man, was obviously more and more upset all the way through what I was saying. And then he went right through the question time, going more and more like a turkey cock in colour, until finally he stood up, took a few steps forward, made a few sounds like a safety valve letting off steams, and then took a few more steps forward and finally exploded in front of the whole assembled audience. You say, he said, that, that we, we you should love the Christians. Love the Christians, he said. They should love us. And before I could get another word in, he said, who killed us in the Holocaust? Hindus? Muslims? Who killed us? It was the Christians, he said. Do you know my earliest memories? And before I could say no, he proceeded to tell me. When I was a boy of four in Lithuania, my earliest memories were going with my aged, gentle grandparents to board up their windows and doors on Christmas Eve because the Christians were coming. My friends, how on earth do you share anything about your faith with someone whose whole thing subconsciously about Jesus has been ruined by a vile and evil caricature by those who are named with the name of Jesus Christ. My friends, we need a clear understanding of the purpose of God for this people. And I say, wherever I go on the one side, we've got those who say, why don't you go out and convert them? Jesus said you should make disciples of all nations. You've no business unless you're making disciples of Jews. And all that. Then on the other side, we've got the other uh, extremists who tell us, it's a missionary organization, it's a missionary organization. That's what they're doing. All underground, they're trying to get Jews. They're trying to win them. We're in a pincer movement. We can't win on our own. My dear friends, it doesn't bother me at all. I think God can do his own work his own way. He loves this people so much he doesn't need my puny efforts. They get very much in his way at times. But if I could get behind the scenes to pray for this people and to intercede for them and clear the way for them and take out the stones that are in the highway to cast up a highway for them, then I believe God could do something. I believe that the origin of the true Jew and the true Christian are the same. They have the same roots, the same scriptures, the same revelation of truth, the same understanding of es eschatology, that is, is, the events of the end. I believe that somewhere, though we are on parallel paths, somewhere we're going to meet. The very force of political, military and economic circumstances is going to force observant Jews and observant Christians together.
my dear friends, how we need an understanding of the Lord's heart. How we need an understanding of what God is doing with this people. If Israel is a political accident, it must surely be the most remarkable political accident in the whole of human history. That after all these thousands of years she should be brought back from the ends of the earth and recreated as a a nation and then with attempt after attempt to destroy her she comes out on top. I know that the Jewish people have incredible ingenuity. Genius. But I think it's giving too much to them. To say that they've managed to survive 3,000 years and then five wars all because of ingenuity. No, my friends, it is the hand of God. It cannot be explained in any other way it is the hand of God. I am unreservedly and unashamedly a Zionist. Because I believe that God has used Zionism and the Zionist leaders, many of them agnostic, in their unbelief, in their inability really fully to understand whether there is even a God. He has yet used them to fulfill his purpose and to fulfill his word through Isaiah the prophet. I will lead the blind by a way that they know not. In paths that they have not known will I lead them. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things will I do and I will not forsake them. No, my dear friends, it seems perfectly clear to me that God is in this business. And if that is so, then you and I need to have some understanding of it. Now, may I just issue a word of of warning on this. There is no subject like Israel or the prophetic word to attract cranks. Oh, I've said that many times. As some of you know, one of the items of prayer that we underline is to pray that the cranks in Jerusalem be removed. They are an embarrassment. My dear friends, you and I can never really be involved in effective prayer and intercession if we belong to some eccentric, weird, bee-in-the-bonnet understanding of prophecy. We've got so many of them. They've got their own idea about this and their own idea about that and their own idea about the other. They're always time latching on to various groups in prayer only to somehow other try to, to sort of propagate their own view. Oh, my dear friends, we, we need to be solid, balanced, sensible, spiritual people. You know, you're not going to help the Lord's cause concerning Israel at all by being a kind of Israel fanatic in your assembly and fellowship. Pastors and leaders are always telling you, oh, we've got some of those Israel fanatics in our congregation. They're a pain in the neck, they tell me. You know, that we can't, we can't say a single thing before they're on to us about, why aren't you talking about Israel? My friends, you don't do any help by trying to do God's work for him. Why don't you help your fellowship? Why don't you participate in the life of your fellowship? Why don't you function? But add to all your functioning the dimension of an understanding of the Jewish people. Then perhaps when these others who don't quite understand begin to see you are functioning in the fellowship, you are participating in the fellowship, you are actually a balanced, solid, reasonably intelligent person. Maybe they will begin to think, there's something in this business. You know, I must tell you something. When people tell me that Israel is a political accident and has nothing whatsoever to do with God's word, I always reply by asking another question. If that is so, 
why is it that wherever I go all over the world, from New Zealand to Canada, or to South Africa, wherever I find prayer warriors, I find they have a burden for Israel. Isn't it rather strange that the people who have the deepest burden for intercession have such a burden? I, I sometimes, after a meeting, some dear person will come up to me, a quite normal, ordinary, average person, and will say, Am I going crazy? Three weeks ago, I couldn't sleep, and I finally got the message I needed to pray. And when I got on a prayed, such a burden for Israel came that I, I cried for two hours or one hour or whatever. I look at a person and I think, how is it this person's never been to Israel? They don't even know any Jews. And yet in the middle of the night they get woken up and when they start to pray, a burden comes into them so that they weep tears that are genuine and real and they don't even know why. And they think, am I going crazy? Well, I can understand the reaction wondering whether they're going crazy. I mean, if they'd been for a tour of Israel and got turned on, you could understand it. But when they haven't even been, haven't got the wherewithal, and will never come. And yet they live, somehow or other, not only for the building up of the church of God, but for the upbuilding of Israel. What is it? Are all these prayer warriors and intercessors somehow deluded or deceived? Or is it an evidence that God is in this business? No, my friends, you and I, we need a clear understanding of God's purpose. If we're going to be effective in prayer, we have got to understand God's purpose. The church began with the Jews. There wasn't a single member of the early church who wasn't Jewish. Now the funny thing is, some Jews will not accept that and some Christians won't accept that. But it's still a fact. I go everywhere telling people, all twelve apostles were Jewish. Not one of them was even half Jewish. They had Jewish father and Jewish mother, every one of them. I always tell all these folks, all their great cathedrals are named after Jews. St. Matthews, St. Mark's, St. Peter's, St. Paul's. They got me in New Zealand, in Christchurch. Ah, they said. Not Christchurch. Our cathedral's called St. Mary. And I said, so? Of course, I know the Irish have got St. Patrick. We're happy to give him to them. <laughs> and there are a few others, like St. Boniface and a few others that weren't Jewish. But the fact still remains that most Christians don't even realize that for the first ten or more years of church history, every single member of the church was Jewish. It began with the Jews, and in my estimation, the church is going to end with the Jews. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and he's coming back to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. It began there, it's gone out all over the world, it's going to end there. And I believe that in the end, even the Jewish people are going to recognize without any embarrassment that these innumerable multitudes of Gentiles from all over the world have been joined to the commonwealth of Israel through the work of the Jewish Messiah. Furthermore, I'm perfectly content to leave the matter with God. I remember when Professor Flusser gave a series on Pauline theology in his letters, and uh, in a question time was asked, 
because some, of the, some Christians present couldn't believe that David Fluso wasn't a Christian. After listening to the way he explained the Apostle Paul's theology. So someone got up and said, I, I want to ask you a personal question if you don't mind. Do you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? And David Flusser looked at him and said, I'm an observant Jew, I can't say that Jesus was the Messiah. But he said, I'll tell you this, when the Messiah comes, if he is Jesus, I will not be surprised. No, my dear friends, the fact of the matter is we have come a full cycle in the most extraordinary way. We have a professor of Bailan University, Pinchas Lapid, mentioned by Gerald this afternoon. He is now in Germany, working in, the univer in a university in Germany. And he publishes a book. I mean, I, it blows my mind. I... I find it hard to believe we have so-called Christian theologians telling us that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth. That, that, that it's symbolic, it's metaphorical, it's not an actual resurrection. Then we have a Jewish, an observant Jewish professor who writes a book defending the actual literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead and saying that it is totally within the Jewish historic tradition. He says lots of people were raised from the dead under the old covenant. He's quite right. He doesn't say that Jesus uh, uh, is the Messiah in the way that Christians say. But the fact is, isn't it amazing that a Jewish professor writes a book defending the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and proving it from the Old Testament and the New Testament? And we have Christian theologians telling us he did rise from the dead, that it was all symbolic. You can understand why everybody's confused, can't you? <laughs> no, my friends, in the end, Jews and Christians are going to fall into each other's arms. We are witnessing a love story. And the love story is a divine one. It is first and foremost not to do with Jews and Christians. It is to do with God and the Jewish people. But in the final analysis... He will bring all together and then all Jews will understand that this vast number of Gentiles that have been saved all over the world to whom King David and King Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah are as much part and parcel of their life as Peter and John and James. <laughs> of course, they're all Jewish too, but I mean, they don't sort of understand that. They will understand these people have come in and the historic ideal and aspiration of Judaism, that in the end the whole earth would come to Jerusalem and worship the Lord in a unity of spirit will have taken place. Now, my friends, isn't this worth being in a prayer battle for? I would like just to say one or two other things before I finish, and that is, I feel that there's no, you can't effectively pray for people unless you love them. For many Christians, their only understanding of Jews are summed up by two literary figures in the English, in English literature. Shakespeare's Shylock in The Merchant of Venice and Dickens' Fagan in Oliver Twist. Right at the very beginning, when they're children almost, that is the kind of idea that so many Christians have of Jews. I believe that God needs you to love this people. You can never undo what has been done to them in the name of Jesus and in the sign of the cross. Not if you love them and love them and love them and love them and love them, them again. You will never ever undo what has been done in history. 
But at least that caricature of Jesus might be removed. That misinterpretation and misunderstanding of the work of the cross might at last be removed. I say you ought to love this people. Paul said, I have unceasing pain and sorrow in my heart for my own kiss and kin. We need to have something of that unceasing pain and sorrow in the heart. Is there any way that people can pray unless they have burden? And how does burden get born in the heart unless there is a real love for the Lord? And for the people he's concerned for. We need such a love. And we need to seek God for such a love. Lastly let me say something about effective prayer. I don't know why but in many prayer, time, prayer meetings I go into. Which are at least real prayer meetings. I get the impression that prayer is viewed as warfare with God. In other words, I have a feeling that the idea is that if we can only persuade God to do what he doesn't want to do by praying long enough and loud enough and fervently enough, he might hear and do it. It's a kind of um, Islamic idea of God that he's very impartial, very uh, 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 far away, very impersonal. He's not really very interested. And of course we take that scripture, again I say unto you, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. And people say, now if two of us can agree, that being a miracle, if two of us can agree, we can twist the divine arm and God will have to do what he doesn't really want to do. He doesn't want to save Israel. He doesn't want to deliver Israel. He doesn't want to build up Israel. He doesn't want to build up the church. He doesn't want the church to advance or the interest of the kingdom of God to be fulfilled. But if two of us agree to agree, then we can go to God and we can twist the divine arm. We can corner him, get him into a corner, and in the end he will have to say, all right, all right, I'll do it. But that's an idea of prayer. You laugh, but isn't it true? It underlies so much better. Whereas in actual fact, if you listen to the whole statement of Jesus, he said, Again I say unto you, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. In other words, it is the Lord by the Holy Spirit being in the midst of two or three gathered in his name that gives rise to the agreement. It's not that we agree to agree. It's rather that as we pray, we find a witness in our hearts to another person's prayer. And then we find that we're saying the same thing. We're praying the same thing. There is a fallacy in some circles that you must only pray for something once. That's, that's nonsense. It's like saying when you went over the River Jordan, all you need to do is put your feet down in the River Jordan, the priests, and the waters would pile up and you could go over on dry ground. Then when you come to Jericho, you say, now all we need to do is put our feet down once and the, the, the walls are going to come down. They would have never come down. They could have put their foot down, feet down once there, but they wouldn't, the walls wouldn't, because God wanted them to go round once for six, for six days and seven times on the seventh. You say, can you imagine why God wanted that? I'm not being irreverent. Was it that he was tired? He was able to do Jordan so swiftly, just like that. But when he got to Jericho, he said, Phew, the heat. It's... Uh, this is going to be a longer job. I mean, it's so silly when you think about it. Of course not. God is God. God could not only do the River Jordan in one thing, like he did the Red Sea, he could have all brought down the walls of Jericho. But God did not will it that way. He had something to teach the children of Israel. And that's why there are times when we have to persevere in prayer and say the same thing again and again and again, together, absolutely one, till we have the witness in our hearts. God has heard. The thing is done. Then we turn over to pray. Effective prayer. I quite agree that we need to get together with this business. I, don't, I think it's tremendous to be personal intercessors for Israel, but I think we need one another.
Don't hive off in an unhealthy manner as if you're some little exclusive group and you shut out the rest of the fellowship or whatever else. But my dear friends, we need to be together in this prayer battle for Israel. I believe that Jesus has not only the keys, I believe he is king. And I think that when we appeal to the king, a word from the king, oh, what a wonderful thing it is when the king reveals his policies, when the king reveals his will, when the king gives counsel, when the king leads us by the Holy Spirit, is there any way that you and I can know the headship of Jesus unless it is by the Holy Spirit? There is no way. There is no way. It is a theory until it is by the Holy Spirit. So, my dear friends, it's time for me to sit down. Just wait, just wait. Please don't take my valuable time. You and I need to be able to touch the throne of God for Israel. I want to tell you, I may be wrong, but I believe that Israel has passed into the most dangerous phase of her modern history. She is now facing threats as I said this morning, from all sides, within, but most of all, from without. My dear friends, you and I have a job to do. I have, from the very first time that I came to know Ken and Lily, Burnett, and this work, Prayer for Israel, I have never ceased to thank God that he burdened them with this almost lifelong burden to pray for Israel. It is a Daniel ministry. It is a ministry that goes far, far beyond our little understanding, our partial understanding. May God challenge you. In the early days of the church, it was Jews who laid down their lives that Gentiles might come to the knowledge of the God of Israel. That they might become partakers of the salvation of the God of Israel. Is it too much to ask? That in the last days of world history, Christians of Gentile extraction would lay down their lives for the Jewish people. That the purpose of God might be fulfilled in this people. May God give you such grace. <laughs>